Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to my good bad brain. I'm a normal person, so I'm insane. I've got depression and ADHD, but I'm doing better since I medicated me. I'm still not always sure whether I exist or what being a person even really is. But I figured out a long time ago that being alive is Hi, everyone. Hello. How are you? Um, I have morning voice because it's the morning. Um, I, you know, going to put out this episode. We're doing the stream again tomorrow morning. We're doing the Sunday morning stream at 10 a.m. And um, I don't know, quarantine. Quarantine, like what is time? in quarantine i know that's that's like a very hack comment to make everyone is probably uh, everyone's saying that over and over again but it is true what is time and then i was like oh my god it's saturday and i've been sitting trying to get this pot out all week so here you are if you missed last week's uh this is gonna be uh we talk more about quarantine stuff because how could we not what's going on with everybody um we also we talk more specifically about uh some people ask some questions about kids in quarantine which gets into this thing about uh lions and and puppies this like lion mindset puppy mindset which is pretty cool and actually i think very applicable to to more uh grown-up type people as well um also apropos with the tiger king thing out this week am i right oh my god the tiger king thing anyway that's for another day um i mean well, we'll get back to it. Uh, we talk about emotional flooding a little bit, like dealing with partners when you know you have emotional flooding and how to mitigate that stuff and communicate with each other. Um, just more more quarantine conversation. Uh, but I'm not going to introduce this one too hard. Um, I'm just you know going to let it get into it because we kind of do it in the show and just invite you if you have any questions or want to participate in the stream 10 a.m. on Sundays, mixer.com slash mygoodbedbrain. Also, while you're in quarantine, uh, I've been doing these quarantine calisthenics every day at noon on my Instagram live at Jarrett, uh, the Jarrett underscore sleeper one. And they've been really great. They're really helping my mind and my body. So if you're looking for, if you need a little self-care, a little, uh, help, they usually 30 minutes, 40 minutes. Uh, it's, it's only about 20 or 30 minutes of actual work with some, some breathing and resting in between learning the moves. Um, but it's been great, man. There's a little, uh, there's a little, 
cadre of uh, stalwarts. You know, we've got a little quorum that shows up kind of regularly, and it's been really nice. It's been really very sort of like community building. What was I going to say about the tiger? I was going to say about the Tiger King thing. Dude, the Tiger King thing is amazing. I think everyone should watch the Tiger King thing. Something I think you should consider while you watch it. It's like, why, why do we make sort of this class of people? Rednecks, right? Poor, they're just people who are living in poverty and living in rural situations. I mean, not everyone there is like so poor, but it's like, you know, it's poor. It's money, you know, even though they're spending all this money on the tigers, it's like, it's, it's a different, uh, I just, I just wish to draw attention to the thing that seems to be the punchline for people a lot of time is a situation created by uh, systemic poverty you know, and, uh, an inability for people to build intergenerational wealth, uh, in these, you know, sort of areas. And, um, that there's actually something really beautiful about like this, like basically a community that accepts whoever, you know, someone willing to give people jobs, uh, you know, who, I don't know, it's obviously there's a lot of bad parts to it. Like they're definitely narcissists and they're definitely taking advantage of people who have nowhere else to go. But this, uh, I don't know. There's something really beautiful about it. And the fact that like Joe Exotic's whole thing is just a punchline. I mean, he's, he's not a great guy. He does a lot of really bad things, obviously, but, uh, I don't know. I just think it's, uh, it's a, it's a fun watch. It's outrageous. It's amazing to see people be people, but also like to think about, huh, like what is, what is it about this that makes us just think this is so automatically funny? Um, and check out the Instagram account, Queer Appalachia. Uh, if it's just one of my favorite accounts on Instagram, it's just something I was thinking about. All right. That's it. That's my intro for the week. Come, come by mixer.com slash my good, bad brain. And if you're digging the podcast, check out patreon.com slash my good, bad brain, and, uh, feel free to contribute some cash there. And, um, yeah, that's it. We'll see you. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Thanks. Yeah. We'll love you guys. Take care of yourselves. Hydrate, self-care. Be well. How are you? How are you? How's quarantine treating you? I'm good, man. You know, honestly, I, I'm way better off than a lot of people. Like I still work. I got my job. I have a fucking rig in the garage for working out. I was able to get some chicken at the store. <laughs> Wait, what does your garage rig consist of? Like a cage? It's, like a, road, it's a road rig, you know, squat oh. rack. Oh. Um, and then got a kettlebell, a couple dumbbells. So yeah, yeah. I uh, I mean, I'm I'm like a little early to talk about don't kill yourself list stuff, but I've been doing these like workouts every day. Oh my god. It's, I mean, it's insane. It's keeping me sane. It's it's honestly okay. Well, and this is kind of like the overarching topic. We'll obviously welcome everybody who's here. Uh, this is the My Good Bad Brain podcast stream thing that we do on Sunday mornings. Uh, me, Doctor Nick, you're you're an actual psychologist, traumatologist. Uh, you teach it. Yeah. Well, my I know it's confusing for people. My my PhD is in social work, so I'm right. really like an social scientist. But yeah, I was a clinician for many years before I became a professor at UNLV, which is where I am now in Las right. Vegas. So nice thing about having Dr. Nick, besides him just being a cool, nice guy, is he like is reading literature all the time. He kind of is up to date on, you know, things going on in the mental health world and in, in the world of social work, which is just so intertwined. I feel like they're like the same thing, basically. I yeah, I mean I think that's that's uh what appeals to me about social work is that, 
it, it really is applied in real life context. So we don't do a lot of like, you know, college undergraduate research studies. We do analyses in applied settings. So yeah. in social service agencies with people with multiple overlapping conditions, because we're really interested in what's happening uh, in the real world when we try to do mental health interventions or try to do kind of systems level interventions to help people navigate care, um, stuff like that. Yeah. Well, yeah always, my, that's always why I like talking to you about this stuff. And I mean, I think we get a sense of like, you kind of get a message that therapy or, or mental health care and things like that is very, uh, you know, it's Freudian. It's like very like talking about dreams and, you know, not that, not to say that that stuff's not like, part of it or, or, you know, helpful, but like you get an idea that's very ephemeral. And, um, in my experience, the things that have really helped me are often like very real, very impactful. They are practices, they are behaviors, things like that. So that idea of like applying it, like what actually helps people, like, like you said, in this notion of like intervention and intervention with people who aren't necessarily like, not everybody's open to the sort of like, woo-woo vibes of whatever talk therapy might be, you know, or or you don't think so on the surface. So it's like, how do you get through? Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. And I also think, you know, very few people are doing kind of analysis in the Freudian sense anymore, just because the evidence is, doesn't really support its effectiveness. Some people do kind of the more like loose talk therapy without a, a big agenda. And I think that can be, I mean, without like a concrete agenda of targeting particular behaviors to work on. And I think that can be fine for people who are doing very well and have the money. You know, if you're pretty high functioning, there really aren't behaviors that you're looking to change. And you just kind of like, like coming and talking to your therapist, you know, like kind of a, like, like your grandma or something. Yeah. There are people who do that and that's great. You know, they, I'm glad they're, they have that outlet. Um, that's not the type of work that I do. Um, right. And I think we shouldn't confuse that for what, you know, intervention, like mental health interventions have uh, become over the last couple of decades. Yeah. Uh, that's so funny. I was, I, uh, Ali and I watched What About Bob this week again. Oh, it's sure. one of my favorite movies. It's so brilliant, but it's like exactly like, mocking the ideas of like what therapy, like what we thought of therapy as like your analyst, you know, in the, in the nineties or whatever. Um, I just pointing out again, also anybody here, welcome. If you're all in the chat and stuff, uh, there's a few of you here. If you have any questions or topics you'd like to bring up, uh, during the stream, just pop them in there and we're happy to discuss that kind of stuff. Um, I was going to say, you know, uh, backing up a little bit to like the working out thing or whatever, that one thing I wanted to talk about today is, uh, you know, we're, we're all obviously stressed a lot. And actually I'll open with this one question that can help kick off this stuff from somebody, uh, who submitted, uh, they wrote, uh, my emotions and anxiety are all over the place right now. I swing from gratitude to anger, to despair, to apathy, to sadness, to contentment. My kids do as well. What strategies do you have for parents to help our children navigate their feelings while trying to manage our own? So I think we'll definitely get into that. Um, I was going to say, you know, I think a lot of us are feeling those. There's a lot of message about all that stuff. But I have uh, oddly been finding a lot of positive things coming out of this 
quarantine experience, both personally and in my social networks and stuff. So, um, yeah, I kind of wanted to talk about maybe because you and I are both like also dystopian fantasists <laughs> and stuff like that. And we see a lot of the negative aspects of the way our world's shaped and aspects of this like whole thing feel like inevitable and like will only inevitably get worse. And I, there's been so many feelings coming up this week, like despite my dystopian self that are like, Hey, maybe there's better ways this could work out. Like positive things might come out of this whole thing. And uh, definitely for me on a personal level, I think they are. So I thought we'd like talk about some of that stuff today, but why don't we, uh, why don't we start? Um, I guess I should ask too. The usually this first section, I, I see if there's anything you wanted to talk about today. Any like stuff that's important, or, you know, that you'd like to have like Dr. Nick's corner, you know? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I probably like many people, uh, I've really not had a productive week, but I also um, just gave myself permission to not have a productive week. Like as soon as our uh, as the, the Nevada governor. Um, announced our kind of stay at home measures, which were a couple days before, uh, you all in California. Yeah. Well, I just was like, fuck it. I'm going to kind of take this week off. Um, it's spring break for my students also. So it kind of made sense But what I've really been doing is, uh, playing call of duty with my, uh, (laughs) brother-in-law basically. Wait, are you playing Warzone? Yeah. Oh, we should play Are together. I, do, I downloaded oh, okay. it because I was playing Call of Duty really? a few months back. Really? Oh, good. Yeah, because I, I re-downloaded it when they put this patch out, but I haven't played it yet. But the nice thing is you can cross-play. So if you're on PC, Dude, if you're on whatever... Yeah, we, he's on. I'm, I'm playing it on an Xbox. He's on PS4, and we have my my sister's a physician, and so one of her like resident friends, who's also a physician, oh my is God. playing on PC. And dude, it's PC Master Race. When you see this oh, motherfucker yeah. moving, around, oh, it ridiculous. makes me so, it makes me so happy when I would. It's yeah, it's fucking rocks. <laughs> when I would like log into a, a, a lobby, and you see, you can see the little like, are they on PC? Are they on Xbox? Are they on PlayStation? And sometimes I'd log in, and they'd all be PlayStation and Xbox, and I'd be like. Oh, oh yeah, here we yeah, go. Land to the slaughter. <laughs> yeah, so I've been playing that. I've also been playing Doom Eternal, which if you haven't played it, looks it fun. it's so really it's so fun. And the soundtrack is just you turn it on and the, and like the soundtrack starts and but it's been making me a little angry. I can't like read Twitter and play Doom Eternal at the same time because Shit gets a little out of control. Well, anyway, I this, been is, doing- this is just really quick. That's to say, we may end up just using Mixer for its original intended design of streaming video games. Apparently, Doctor Nick and I are going to play Call of Duty. <laughs> I do want to, yeah. So, but but one thing. So, I think look, and this is sort of to this other guy's point. There's a lot of balancing that needs to happen. And actually, let me zoom out a little bit more to just kind of like one aphorism that I've been thinking about a lot, which is that stress reveals. You know, stress reveals, stress reveals weaknesses and stress reveals strengths, which is why if you kind of think of an optimal like anxiety band, which is analogous, to like an optimal stress band, there is like an amount of anxiety and stress that helps you to perform. And then there's whatever the task is. And then there's an above that you, your performance suffers and below that it also suffers. So we are now, I think for most people like in a stress band that exceeds what we cope well with, but some people it may not exceed it that much. Others, it's going to totally exceed it. You know, if you're like financially 
at zero and unable to cope. I mean, it's fucking horrible. Like no one can cope well with that. But, but the idea is that stress reveals. So we're seeing our own personal weaknesses and our own personal strengths. And we're also seeing systemic weaknesses and strengths. I mean, look at the systemic weaknesses that have been revealed by this system. And it's things that, you know, liberals have been talking about forever. We need paid sickly for people. I mean, we need some kind of universal basic income because 30% of our economy is service sector face-to-face interactions. And we just can't have all those people have no money. I mean, it doesn't make any fucking sense. So our, our weaknesses are being revealed and also our strengths are being revealed. I mean, like, you know, our kind of individual resilience is being revealed. So it makes perfect sense that you would see your emotions oscillating between anxiety, contentment, all these different um, feelings that the that the questioner identified. That makes sense, you know. So I think we could talk about some some parameters to try to put in place to contain all the confusion. Um, so you know, one stress reveals, and two, uh, we're outside of our normal patterns of habit. So our we're trying to get back into homeostasis. And that's going to be chaotic and confusing and weird because we haven't been through this before. I mean, no one has. So navigating that and achieving some kind of homeostasis that works for you is going to be a process. And I'd be shocked if anybody had achieved that outcome within a week. Yeah, exactly. Well, that, I guess, is part of what's interesting. And to your points about stress revealing, that's a really good, that's a really good yeah, aphorism, I think you said. But um. That I I keep thinking about, and the proof feels like so in the pudding. Uh, this past week or a few weeks, um, on Ali's podcast on ologies, they had this disasterologist a while ago, and I've mentioned this a few times probably. But I remember that interview with that disasterologist. You know, the thing that stuck out the most that really struck me again as a dystopian fantasist was her saying that in disasters, in reality, like in literature and movies on the news whatever it's always looting it's always like hoarding it's all this kinds of thing and then on top of it the viral videos that get shared you're like oh people punching each other over toilet paper it's outrageous but in that's sensational that's like as usual like these small examples of fearful things right but that in reality people behave in a they they demonstrate a lot more pro-social behavior in times of disaster and crisis she says like these grassroots efforts always come she says like there are all these terms that they use you'll see terms like of, of grassroots organizations like community organizing and sort of these little aid groups that that pop up and i think this disaster feels strange because it's not devastating physically like there's not like buildings falling down and there's not a flood it's just this you know specter out there that we're aware of um and that it, you know, might feel hard to believe like, oh, oh, I just got to stay inside and not understand like the network of what a difference it makes to not be a vector of, you know, transmission of the disease. But um, I have been finding that pro-social thing is seems very present. I've talked to a few people this week who have echoed sentiments of feeling strangely closer to their friends and and family and loved ones and even like neighbors, even though you're not literally closer, you were all literally social distancing. But I know like on my street um, with my neighbors, we've been all texting and just checking in on each other. Like, does anybody need anything? How's everyone doing? Yeah, totally. 
I've been like having more calls with, like, you know, again, most of my friends are back in LA. So, but I've been having like much more phone contact with my friends than I had previously with my yeah. family too. You know, we're doing like daily check-ins. So yeah. And I on those, I, I, yeah, I saw somebody made a funny tweet the other day. Um, that was basically saying like, you know, <laughs> in my regular life, I, Netflix and I do nothing. And they're like, all of a sudden, for some reason in quarantine, I'm like cleaning every day. I'm exercising. I'm like, you know, doing all these like projects that I wish, you know, and I, I understand also, I totally agree uh, with people saying like, let's not put this pressure on everybody to use quarantine to finish your product. You know, like you got to be grinding. Like, no, yeah, like don't, don't even feel that. But there is a weird, <laughs> I don't know, like a homesteady quality. That's like, I don't know for me, this is, I guess, part of what I want to talk about of just, you know, potentially positive things coming out of this besides the like reconnection to our communities and friends and people just checking in on each other and caring about each other. And then that how that might be at even a, a policy level of thing that pushes through that people suddenly say, wow, it's really important that we take care of each other and do something with finances for working people, you know, uh, it's just it's just feels like something has forced the world to press pause and like look at itself and the overwhelming steady grind of normal society, which is always so overwhelming and confusing to me and feels like there's a million things I have to do all the time. It just feels like it's all focused down so much into being like, who do you love? Yeah. What do you love? What What do you want to make sure is okay? And let's focus on that, you know? Well, I just also, I think it just shows how precarious and fragile all those assumptions are. I mean, they're just, they've emerged as just assumptions. And when tested, a lot of those assumptions have utterly failed, you know, about the resilience of our economic system, our social systems. So I think when a lot of assumptions are suddenly revealed to be wrong, it's destabilizing cognitively and emotionally, in addition to being destabilizing financially. I mean, I, that's, it just blows my mind. Um, and God, I mean, I just became so enraged seeing these senators who dumped their stock, Oh yeah, you know, I can't even get into it. I'm going to like say something I shouldn't say, but, but we see systems emerge uh, emerge as fragile and less stable than we thought. And so I think, you know, again, to your, to the questioner's point, it's probably at some point when it feels like manageable, a good idea to think about building some structure. And, you know, everyone's been saying this, so it's important to think about building some structure. The, the piece I think is important is, is to remove the, like, again, sort of, fake external pressure on that structure. If you don't have like a job to, you know, I teach a class, so that's some structure that I, I have to have. I'm going to teach at that time. I got to prepare that lesson. I have some papers I need to be working on, but I mean like the home structure. So like, you know, Gina and I, one of our structures is that, you know, like most people, once it hits like eight, nine o'clock, we're going to like watch some shows that we watch on, on TV, you know? Yeah. And that's kind of an anchor anchor point. And I noticed that being like an anchor point for me, like, okay, it's time to start winding down. This is what we're going to do. And I think, you know, this week, my plan is to add in a few other anchor points, like a morning anchor point and, you know, some structure set aside for work in the morning. I think that's going to be what works best for me, but I'll see. That's my plan this week. And I'll report back and see if that does work out. And I think, you know, the point is probably similar for, 
this gentleman or this lady's question, like, you know, maybe dinner time becomes like a little bit of structure. Maybe there's a couple hours in the morning where there there's a little bit of gentle structure for the kids and then see how it works. Fuck, maybe it doesn't work. You know, maybe it doesn't work yeah. that day. It's funny that that sounds very resonant with the things that are making my experience feel positive, which is like I've noticed over the last week, definitely a little structure has appeared. And, and yesterday, too, the last two days, I've been communicating with uh, people I work with. I do also tend to work from home as well. And I do like sort of freelancey like editing and things like that. But in yeah. the wishy-washiness of like the days melting and, you know, the quarantine being so strange, stuff was falling by the wayside. So I had like a few meetings just via phone the last couple of days. We set some deadlines, which gave me some sense of like actual structure over the next few weeks of, of projects and work things that we need to accomplish. And then also uh, the daily structure, I think, is so real is like probably the foundational ones have, for me have been one. I've been doing these quarantine calisthenics like live on, yeah. on Instagram and I do them at noon every day. And something about that, I don't know the last time I've done something consistently for more than a week, like in my life, it's just like a half hour of sweating and the engagement with people, like I think helps the feeling that you have to show up for somebody else, even if it's just a few people on a stream or something like that. But something yeah. about that it feels like, okay, that's become my benchmark in the middle of the day. I, I do this little thing and the mornings, Allie and I, I get up, I make some coffee. We, we make coffees. I tend to make like two coffees for us. We get the dog, we go for a walk down the street and back. And these things have become my little like, yeah, like tent stakes throughout the day of like the things that around that I keep thinking about, um, there's all these like famous examples of, uh, schedules, home, like work schedules of like Ben Franklin, or I saw a great one from Ursula K. Le Guin the other day that, Oh, yeah, I are, seen that. oh it's, it's amazing. She's, it's like, I, I almost, Hunter Thompson, of course, classic. If you've seen that one, which one Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter. Oh yeah. I, but it's making me think of those that like a lot of those people, like, like famous creative work from home types, I've realized that they only like work for like two or three hours a day, you know, like in terms of, and I think they've done studies too, that say people who are in office situations, like actual office settings really only get like two hours of work done a day, like with all the futzing and the, you know, whatever else goes on. And, um, I think that that's so important to acknowledge that like all these other things, like, I don't know, there's so much pressure on us to be productive, to, to define our wellness and to define our worth by like how productive we are. And now that we are in this situation where all our, our systems are disrupted, all the pressure to, to be productive or, or the sort of even ability to examine it is suddenly so in our face and we don't really have benchmarks to know how to judge that by and i feel like there's got to be like a relaxing around that sense and and maybe it's forcing some people to look at or for other ways to measure their wellness you know than like how productive i am and then yeah. and also just the, the the need to self-structure is is so new for a lot of us yeah i mean i often ask myself like who is that for you know who is that productivity for <laughs> You know, yeah. Uh, I mean, I know who it's for in my case, but you got to think like, who who is that for? Um, yeah, I, I just think the other thing is when you're trying to build that structure. Like, I think it's 
it seems very clear, you know, all the evidence and kind of anecdotal and systemic indicates that structure is helpful, helpful for people to feel mentally well. Um, at the same time, this is a chaotic period. So if you're not able to do that, or if you're struggling with it, I think you should be very gentle with yourself. Like keep on trying, you know, keep, I think it's the evidence is strong enough to suggest that it's healthy, um, that you should keep on trying, but also, yeah, just be gentle with yourself. There are going to be days when it just fucking doesn't work and there are going to be some yeah. probably some different methods you need to try before you hit the one that more or less works. And if you have a partner and kids at home, that's going to be a negotiation, you know? Yeah. So on um, that negotiating, say that again about the negotiating, just that you should keep negotiating to try to find some kind of structure that yeah. whatever it looks like. Well, that's one thing, um, you know, Allie and I, we've been living together for almost getting close to a year now. And, uh, but even, even in that time, this is the most time we've spent together consistently, you know, because she travels for work or we're out of the house working or like whatever. And I bet a lot of people are going through that, whether it's with their kids or their, or their loved one, their, their partner, whatever. And that, that constant negotiation thing is so, I mean, I bet a lot of people are finding out a lot about their relationships right now, but I have been yeah. finding again that I think we are communicating better. We're like maybe forced to a little bit. And also uh, part of those things of, of figuring out solutions, like realizing that we're both coming from a place of not being, not wanting the other one to feel bad or something like about like, no, we want this to function. We want it to be... I think maybe that's the wider thing about what I think feels like social implications of what might be going on is the realization that in crisis, when you would expect those stressors to reveal weaknesses and maybe create more drama and more conflict, is you're realizing, well, everything is so bad and destabilized and crazy and confusing externally and environmentally that actually the choices I'm going to make personally and interpersonally are ones that are very instinctively oriented towards harmony and peace and getting along like how can we make that happen and i mean you know some of it with uh with ali's been like we share an office and it's been like figuring out like oh you're right my rig is like three screens and set up here i i uh do kind of take over the space um and being able to communicate about that is like well so i when i just have to write i'll go in the other room with the laptop so you don't feel exiled from our shared office all the time you know or something like that um like those kinds of communications around how to like, even though we're going to be stuck in a house together, like how do we, you know, respect each other's space and make each other feel, you know, okay. And, uh, and, and like, we still have some kind of, I don't know, privacy is not the word, but like, just so you don't feel trapped. So you don't feel yeah. like, oh, we're stuck, you know? Right. Um, yeah. well, I, I was going to ask, I want to, uh, get a little more granular maybe with you on this question from this person who was saying that, you know, their, their emotions are all in swing, but saying that their kids are having these swings as well. And then specifically going to this point of strategies you have for parents to help children navigate feelings while they're trying to navigate your own, because obviously there's probably some analogous stuff to a partner to like, you know, just negotiating with somebody you're trapped with, uh, you know, trapped with, (laughs) but like, what about that particular dynamic of when you are the caretaker and they are maybe younger and, you know, stuff like that, maybe don't understand like why we can't go to back to the park or school or things that we like to do. Man. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, a couple of things. One, like I don't have kids. So I have to say, you know, my, 
I don't have expertise in that area, although, you know, I can talk a little bit about what the research literature says. But to back up a little more, I would just say, you know, to remember that among other things like the grand mystery and qualia of experience that emotions represent, they are on some degree, to some degree, responses to internal and external stimuli. I mean, that's kind of like one function of emotions is to tell us how to react to internal and external stimuli, right? So the kind of um, landscape of stimuli that you have become accustomed to, which makes your emotions feel like relatively stable and predictable, that's been upended. You know, now we have all these other internal and external stimuli and we're trying to figure out how to respond to that. So that to me kind of helps me make sense of some of the emotional chaos that we see, or just like for myself, I'm a little more irritable, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, yeah, a little more reactive. And I think it makes sense given the, um, the suite of uh, stimuli we're responding to and how much that shifted. So that's one thing, but you know, the other thing is the, the, the research literature really does indicate that kids especially need stability and predictability So their predictable routines have all gone out the window. And so, again, this is not my personal experience, and I certainly would not sit around, you know, telling parents how easy it is to just institute some new routine. I don't even think that at all. Nevertheless, um, the, the literature does suggest that some kind of stability, predictability, and routine, whatever it looks like, is going to help people stay, kids stay, Mm. uh, a little more calm and relaxed. And then the other thing is like finding a way for them to burn their energy. Right. Right. I mean, like a puppy, you know? Yeah. So like the best, you know, like they gotta, they gotta be tired. If they're tired, they're probably going to behave a little better. Um, And I assume very specifically physically tired, like that, like too much screen time and agitation is probably. Yeah. Physically tired. So, you know, maybe it's like, I don't know, fucking family jumping jacks, if everybody's capable of doing those or whatever it is, some kind of time for a controlled chaos of physical movement, and then some kind of time for other things, you know, um, to the extent that's possible. And I'm yeah. certainly, you I know, feel, don't I, knock, I feel like what, anybody, it's yeah. not possible. Well, you're saying, I mean, I feel like I'd never till this sounds so silly to say, but till what you just said, never really got like why we had to have a bedtime as children. <laughs> But like that there is something kind of nice about that structure. It feels like somebody's paying attention to you. It feels like somebody, you know, you're, it's creating some container for your day in your life that says like, this is, these are the things we do at these times. Yeah. That's really interesting. I, I, I was going to say, Oh, go ahead. Like having a weekend too. Like, okay. You know, it's the weekend. Maybe you get an extra hour of, or what extra hour of screen time, extra, whatever it is, you know, stay up later or whatever. Some kind of, you know, routine, some yeah. kind of routine is really the key. Um, I was going to ask you actually related to this sort of thing. I, I always feel like, I don't know, do you, are you familiar with any, because, okay, the CBT stuff and the, you know, any kind of like mindfulness training, is there, I guess it's a two-pronged question. One, is there any approach that you've found or that you know works like for trying to teach that stuff to kids, like starting when you're young in like, mindfulness sort of practicing about, you know, whatever that is, identifying your feelings and and knowing how to talk about them. And, and then the other question I had related to that is, is there anything, obviously traumas, uh, or, or just like big life events that hit you when you're a kid 
really shape, you know, you, it seems much more intensely than things that might happen later. Um, is, are there ways to mitigate that strangeness or, or to deal appropriately, like from a young age, if you have kids around you going through something strange to help it not necessarily, you know, fester or turn into something later in life? Yeah. I mean, well, yeah. And again, I mean, again I, I'm, I'm probably using all the wrong terminology just about like festering and, the, you know, but so I apologize up front, but yeah. No, not at all. I mean, we, so yeah, I think there's a lot there. One, one thing I would say is in terms of how to do, not that again, parents should feel pressure to like do mindfulness with their kids. Like, man, just do whatever works for you right now, you know, but if you think the kids might be receptive, there's this guy, his name is Sam Himmelstein. He's a psychologist and he developed a, a a treatment called mindfulness-based substance abuse prevention, which is for adolescents. Um, but I think what's what I really like about this is he's figured out some tools to talk to young people and adolescents about mindfulness in a way that's approachable. So I'll mention that, and I'm going to say an exercise that he does for kids who just like don't want to fucking sit still, you know, and like breathe. So one is he talks about the difference between lion mind and puppy mind, right? So if I have like this bone in my hand and a puppy sitting in front of me and I throw the bone in the corner, what does the puppy do? It runs after the bone. Just mindlessly runs after the bone, right? Now imagine I have a lion for whatever reason sitting in front of me and I had this bone in my hand and I throw the bone in the corner. What does the lion do? I don't know what the lion does. Does it eat you? I don't know. Well, he's going to, who knows, but he's not going to mindlessly chase after the bone. He's going to do what the fuck he wants to do. Yeah. Okay. That's right? good. I like that. So if, if the bone in this kind of analogy is like a thought or a feeling or something that you would normally react to, we want to teach people to be in lion mind. Lion mind is dignified. Lion mind gives you choices for how to behave. It's not reactive the way puppy mind is. So that's kind of, so when you're talking with kids, you'd be like, all right, like when you did that, were you in lion mind or puppy mind? And they can like get that, you know? Yeah. That's so I cool. really like that. That's from Sam Himmelstein. The other thing he does is he has like a game. It's like a mindfulness game for people who are just not trying to sit still. And basically you get the kids who are not trying to sit still and you sit around a table and you're like, all right, whoever lasts first loses. You know, no rules, whoever lasts first loses. And you kind of, you can like look at them weird and make them laugh. And you're like, all right, cool. The next time we're going to try this same game. This time, just try to pay attention to your breath a little bit while you're playing the don't laugh game. Just, just pay attention to your breath a little bit. And then you, you play the game again. And then the third time you play the game, you say, all right, same deal. Try to pay attention to your breath a little bit, but this time just kind of let your eyelids like relax. You can close them or you can kind of just let them relax on the floor while you're also paying attention to your breath. And let's see who wins the game this time. And so what you notice when you do that by scaffolding up and kind of easing into the introduction is by the third round of the game, it might be that nobody laughs, you know? People kind of um, kids, adolescents, uh, and younger, um, they sort of get what it's about by that point. So that could be a fun game to try, cool. or not, man. If that doesn't work for you. Like, whatever. yeah, just try. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm. I, we got a question in the chat. Uh, um, maybe we could. You know, I feel like this is actually sort of related to this. I I, I have found ever since I read. Um, about anxious uh, or attachment theory rather, you know, there's anxious attachment or whatever. Uh, and that it started as this thing for children um, that, you know, they, they came up with this theory based on, I think uh, uh, 
kids in an orphanage or something like that, and you know, who their attachment styles for parents. Study, yeah, that kind of is involved in the, in the attachment work, but attachment as like a formal theory really grew out of this experiment called the strange situation. Um, oh, right. Like, is that the one where like the parents in the room and then they, um, yeah. Leave the room. Yeah. Um, so I was thinking since I read that and then I ended up, I, I found out about attachment theory cause I read a book about it as related to romantic relationships between adults. And that has this, uh, this similar, the same, sort of, um, what do you call it? Like mirrored patterns, parallel patterns to like how you interconnect. I actually think it seems like a lot of sort of parent child communication type issues. Um, there's, there can be real parallels with like how you communicate with your partner, which, you know, doesn't have to be Oedipal and weird. It's just like when you love somebody and you're close to them, you have this sort of mix of, you know, so anyway, one person in our chat asked a question on the topic of communication with a partner. And I relate heavily to what this question is. So maybe we can both weigh in a little, but a question on the topic of communication with a partner. Are there some tried and true ways to help a partner who has trouble expressing more difficult feelings, things they think might hurt you, feel safe to share with you? I have issues with emotional flooding sometimes, but I still really want my partner and uh, I to be able to have these important convos. So I totally relate to this because I know that I have been, I'm reactive. I get emotional flooding, that kind of a thing as well. And sometimes me and my partner are like a perfect storm of, I know they don't want to upset anybody and also sort of, you know, Catholic training to just, just be nice and don't, and don't talk about things that are bothering you. But then it just kind of bubbles in this perfect storm of, you don't want to tell me because you're afraid it's going to hurt my feelings and I'm going to react poorly to it anyway. And it's just going to get worse, but also you don't want to be a, a bother and it just gets worse. We never communicate about whatever the issue is because you know not her fault that i've had shitty reactions in the past it's like literally my fault and now i've created this you know fear around talking about things but when i really want things to be better i'm like no i genuinely want you to i want things to be better i don't want to react poorly but also i want to hear whatever it is so i can create a better situation and i'm not just you know guessing that's what ends up happening we get in this guessing game of like you're trying to figure out maybe this will make them happy maybe that you know that kind of a thing so yeah yeah thoughts yeah. about that yeah so first let me just say one thing about the thing you mentioned previously and then yeah there's a lot to say on this which is like people being worried that their kids are going to be traumatized by this experience uh Kids are very resilient. Human beings are very, very resilient. Hmm. So you're, it's, I mean, you know, without knowing people's particular situations, it's hard to say, but I I think it's safe to say generally, kids are not going to be traumatized and have lasting trauma because of this quarantine. Okay. Uh, Or, you know, social distancing, having to stay at home. If there is a, relatively stable environment if they're getting a lot of love if they're having things explained to them at a level they can understand if there's predictability if there's some level of those things the kids are going to be fine you know they're going to be fine um that's really what's important is having a stable attachment figure which is someone who's predictable whose responses are predictable and whose responses are the same right um the same meaning you know, if you, if the kid runs to them to get a hug, they get a hug, they don't get screamed at one time and then get a hug and then another time get frozen out. Got you it. know, that's the type that makes kids 
feel like they don't know what's going on and they can't regulate their emotions. So, you know, if you're giving, showing your kids good emotion regulation strategies, you're modeling that for them. There's some level of predictability. The kids are going to be fine. I, I wouldn't worry too much about it. Okay. That's good. Okay. To this other point. Yeah. So this is, you know, a couple things I would say. So one, if you guys have identified this dynamic and you're both invested in working on it, that's awesome. I think that's number one is having a shared understanding of the issue. If you don't have that, then you're going to be working on different issues. It's hard to make progress. So is there a shared understanding of the issue? And then when you're both feeling good, like when not when one person's emotionally flooded or, or feeling overwhelmed or dysregulated, when both people are feeling relatively stable, agreeing on a set of parameters for how to work on that when it emerges. Okay. So that's like the first thing. Then, you know, the second thing is that if one person wants to like describe a problem they're having and the other person is worried that they're going to become flooded and have a a maladaptive reaction to that, I think you guys just have to try to work on some language that works. Like, how is it that you can describe the problem to me? And then when I get dysregulated, because that may happen in the beginning while I'm kind of building new, new skills to regulate if I get dysregulated, what are we going to do? Like, are we going to take a 10 minute break and revisit it? Is that, is that okay? Is there another strategy that I'm going to use to try to regulate? Is there kind of like a list of steps that I can commit to in advance to try to regulate? So you, you kind of got to come up with that strategy beforehand. Um, but I think that's a good strategy is figuring out a way that partner A can describe the issue using language that's not, that that's true to their experience, but that doesn't, you know, needlessly kind of trigger a reaction to the other person. And then can the receiving individual, you know, partner B, can they come up with a plan of emotion regulation strategies that they will commit to following when you do feel emotionally overwhelmed? And then can you guys agree to come back and revisit the issue? Yeah. It seems like there is a real, that, that idea of, uh, I don't know well, where there's a will, there's a way, I guess. But if you're genuinely committed to it working, that you just have to be responsible for that be, being true. That like I, if I really do... You know that whole thing about like, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy or something like that? I, I often think oh, yeah. even like the obsession with being right is totally misguided. Like it's not even accurate you just think it is and you have to you know you enter into this like lawyering phase of your emotional negotiation or something like that and i just uh often for myself and i don't always succeed i have to sit and think like oh what why do i actually want our communication to work here do i actually want us to both feel better is that really what i'm trying to do and the answer usually comes back, yeah, that is what I'm really trying to do. So, okay, so then I need to change my responses in this moment. I need to say like, okay, so I, I, I'm not looking for unconsciously more triggers to just be, um, you know, have an emotional uh, response that is, I don't know, substitutes in for another heightened you know, I think that's the thing that happens for me a lot with ADHD brain or whatever is emotional flooding. Like you create chaotic situations so that you get chemicals that you need to like substitute for, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, the other thing is emotions are self-validating. Right. Right. So that, that's the thing is when you feel a very strong emotion, it is inherently self-validating and it, it, provides a lens through which you interpret other experiences that validates that, that emotional experience. So that's why 
you cannot do problem solving at a high level of emotion dysregulation. It's just not a good idea. So if you're at a high level of emotion dysregulation, take a break. The mm-hmm. problem will still be there. It's not going anywhere. You're locked in a fucking house together for the next month, probably. So you can come back to the problem. I would kind of abandon the idea that all problems must be solved immediately in the moment, Ugh. especially if one or both of you is dysregulated emotionally. It's not going to happen. Has anyone ever at a heightened state of emotion dysregulation, just think for yourself, have you ever productively solved a problem with another individual when you're at a nine out of 10 dysregulation? I've never done that. So if it works for you, great, but it doesn't work for me or anyone I know. So I would advocate having a strategy beforehand when the emotions get triggered, individually regulating your emotions using the tools that work for you. And then once they're regulated, coming back to discuss the problem. Yeah, that's so funny. I mean, I'm like laughing while you're talking about that stuff. Uh, I think I got fucked up real good by the notion of don't go to bed angry when I was younger because I took it to mean, and I think this is what my emotions wanted it to mean, was we need to solve it. Like it needs to be solved before we before we sleep. Like this this dis, this disruption that I'm feeling of the rift with a loved one, this rejection sensitivity, this flooded emotions. I definitely. I mean, you can't sleep in that anxiety for sure. But that to me meant like we can't go to bed angry or we don't love each other. We have to fucking figure this out right now. And it's become much more nuanced as I've gotten older and. Uh, engage with somebody who a processes differently than me and my family who like love to just scream things out, you know, and, and whatever, stay up all night. Uh, but also, and like had to respect that and learn somebody who had a different way of processing and found that there are better aspects to it, which are like, you know, people have fight flight freeze, right. In, in crazy stressful situations. And, I'm a fight and for sure. Um, and it depends in different situations, but at least emotionally I fight and, uh, my partner's a little bit of a freeze and that fucked me up so bad for a while because I was like, you're, uh, doing silent treatment to me. You're actually, cause I could only interpret it as fighting back. Like I could only interpret it. You know, I couldn't see it as somebody else doing their own uncontrollable response. I was like, you're making a choice to hurt me. And right. And I was like, on top of it, I was like, plus you're, you're fucking with the common wisdom. Everyone knows don't go to bed hang, angry. You must hate me. You're punishing me. That's why you're doing this. And right. it took me a while to learn two things. One, there's an alternative to going to bed angry and figuring it out, which is like pressing pause, which is saying like at a baseline underneath my emotional response and yours, I know we love each other. I know yes. this is the world's not ending right now. We can't fix it right now. I'm not going to bed angry, even if I'm disrupted right now. Even if we haven't solved this issue and it might be like the shape of it might be angry. It doesn't mean the world's over and you fucking hate me and that's it. And I got to move out in the morning or I got to go drive out. You know, I got to go like already drunk, go get on my motorcycle and be angry and drive around, you know, which is used to be my response. So yeah, you know. So yeah. one is that like going to bed angry, don't going, don't go to bed angry. doesn't mean we fucking work it out right now. I, you know, just realizing that and two, realizing that people have their own responses and that action and that they, they serve a very good function in some contexts. And in particular, this freeze response in the face of fear, which only got worse with my 
my conflict, you know, my, I'm a fucking stage actor who projects and, you know, it's become a joke that I had to like work on my, uh, rejection sensitivity just around that, or especially if I have headphones on where Allie will be like, I'm sorry, but you're like two feet away from me and you're screaming at me and like, even just talking, like being excited about stuff. And I was like, thank you. Thank you. Now, now I know she's not saying like, you're, you're sit down and be smaller. Like I used to feel so much shame when I was like, Oh, I'm yelling and I don't realize it. You know what I mean? We're crazy. But anyway, realizing that somebody might have a better way on some level that she might know instinctively, she's not going to solve anything by fighting back. It's only going to get worse by fighting back. We need a, we need to pause. And some, I would say almost like nine out of 10 times, just going to sleep and just like saying, all right, we're fucking, I'm not, we're not, we're not solving anything. We're not doing this right now. The next day it was like way less crazy. The next morning we could talk about it. It's like, fine. Yes. I think, you know, the, the, that experience, the personal experience that you just described is like right on the money makes a ton of sense. You know, the thing is we can feel more than one emotion at the same time. And it's important to remind yourself of that just because one's in the front, it's like windows on the computer, you know, like lots of them are open. There's just one in the front right now. Right. And just because one in the front is angry. Doesn't mean that the ones in the back aren't love and the desire to work things out with your partner. So yeah, I agree. Like, you know, applying some, some false pressure that you have to solve a problem before you can go to sleep is lunacy to me. I think you just have to remember, remind yourself that this is a person you love or these kids, you love these kids, you know, this is a person that you love. You're committed to working things out. And right now is not the moment to do that. You know, sometimes the case, although I think it is important to like achieve that shared understanding also with your partner, you know, because you can see that, if, for example, you know, Ali had tried to dictate that that's how you guys were going to do things before you would come to that understanding also, that could feel very bad too. Sure. I mean, I just think, you know, you grow, you grow, you figure your stuff out. Yeah. I, well, well, you said... You can feel one emotion at the same time and right. you can feel one intense emotion in the front while there is an underlying kind of love and commitment underneath that, you know? Yeah, it's... You... Uh... You said something like last week that I've been thinking about a lot. I've been repeating to other people, which was about this triangle of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that like you have these three things going on all the time and that sometimes thoughts and feelings cannot be changed. Like you just can't negotiate with what they are, but you can like the whole, like I, if I could get in your body, you could, I could do this behavior that you could change the behavior. And, uh, and then sometimes the thoughts and feelings would follow with it. And I, I kind of, uh, I think that sometimes, and this sort of relates in a weird way, metaphorically back to this idea of tent poles of like, of, of, anchors in your day, even in your structure of like having an anchoring belief around a relationship, which is like an anchoring understanding, which is just because my thoughts and my feelings might be telling me sometimes this person hates me. I'm a piece of shit. I'm so I fucked up, whatever. I can know behaviorally. I can have figured out like and have it on a piece of paper. Even this person loves you. You love this person. This is a conclusion you've come to. This is a belief you hold. And this is like a, a sort of commitment that you have is that you want things to work well. And for you and this person to be happy together, to be like partnered and helping each other. And that sometimes returning to that behavior doesn't feel like anything doesn't I don't I don't even I don't think it but I can sort of like repeat the mantra and understand this anchor 
And it, even though that's like a thoughty kind of thing, it feels more behavioral. It feels more like you're saying, I'm, I'm distancing from the experience I'm having in this right now and relying on the sort of um, ethos that I've defined for myself, my, my set of core beliefs, you know? Totally. And I think you know, another thing to remind yourself of just like when it comes to emotions is the more like immediately intense, the more transient, you know? Oh. So that's, I think, consistent with what you're saying. But because emotions are physiological processes, it's just not possible for your body to maintain a super high level of intensity of anything for a long period of time. So the more intense, the more transient, you know? Yeah, that's really good. I did. I, uh, I was going to say also, I love the word lunacy in general, especially because like, it's got the same root as like lunar. It's like a, it's like a craziness from the moon, like werewolves go crazy. And, and I just like, you know, it's like in the middle of the night when the moon is high and we're acting like lunatics. I just think it's, it's very poetic. I also, I found the Ursula K. Le Guin, uh, schedule and I was going to share it. She's this wonderful writer. 5.30 AM, wake up and lie there and think. 6.15 a.m., get up and eat breakfast, in parentheses, lots. 7.15 a.m., get to work, writing, writing, writing. Noon, lunch. So 7.15 to noon is like her, her work time writing, right? 1 to 3, reading, music. 3 to 5, correspondence, maybe house cleaning. 5 to 8, make dinner and eat it. After 8 p.m., I tend to be very stupid and we won't talk about this. <laughs> And that's her schedule. And and I'm like, D- yes, that's seven to noon. We're talking about a little less than five hours is what she's describing as her like real work time. Now, of course, yeah. correspondence, chores of house, these kinds of things. Those are real aspects of life that we all need to take care of. And co- that's part of work. But I think beating ourselves up about like how productive we are. It's like, who's it for? What's it for? Like, maybe you're realizing this time being a whole person, being somebody who's cared for and, and meeting your responsibilities isn't, isn't the same as like driving somewhere, sitting there from nine to five and come, you know what I mean? Like when you have to self-define it, I don't know. It's nice. I think we have to like maybe reflect and, and change some of our paradigms about what's important to us and what works best for us and you know who we are. Uh, I think we'll wrap this uh, thing up. We're doing good. I, I, um, let's do don't kill yourself list stuff. If you have anything fun or positive that's come out of this, this week, uh, what's, what's doing it for you? You know, it really has this week been like the various technological platforms for like multi person interaction. Like I've, I've FaceTimed with like, you know, a bunch of friends from LA FaceTimed with my family and then playing the, the, oh, yeah. uh, Call of Duty with uh, my my brother in law. It has been really fun. Too. Yeah, it rocks. I it's um I totally agree. I was like. We had a, I had a jujitsu class, two jujitsu classes this week via Zoom. We're doing uh, it's really oh. cool. Uh, it's like it's like uh, the first one was kind of a check in and a figuring things out. Our second one, it's basically, you know, our coach Nathan at Villains. He he puts like a a, a famous competition jujitsu match, like a, an important like thing that seems to demonstrate important like you know, we were watching marcelo garcia matches and then does like breakdowns of them like moment by moment talking about little things that they do and and it's like great it's like this uh you know university style lecture sessions and you're like oh this is actually really i i'm crazy for that stuff i really feel like those helps me later when we can all roll again i had a comedy oh, class sure. via zoom it's just like great we're all like you know it's here <laughs> 
I was going to say my thing this week was, uh, is, and very related to this is like these workouts. I've been doing these quarantine calisthenics. I, I before that, before quarantine, I had really like no fucking exercise schedule going steady. I dragged myself to jujitsu a couple times a week, but I've been doing these things every day at noon. You can come to Instagram live and join me if you want. I don't need any, you don't need equipment. We're doing it with no equipment. I do it on a hardwood floor just to make a point. Sometimes I'm really dumb and annoying about like St. Patrick's Day. I just like wore green khakis and I wore one of Allie's like green Kelly green shirts and I screamed like a leprechaun the whole time. Like it's just silly. And it's like, you get to talk with people. I get a real sweat and it is like completely, I don't know what it is, but I, I feel like completely my brain is like, feels so good and regulated. I'm getting more productive at other things. I'm like communicating better in general about stuff. It's uh, it's very strange. And I'm like, is it really just doing half hour of sweating at the same time every day? Is that like really bringing this much regulation into my life? I don't know, <laughs> but it feels awesome. So <laughs> I don't know. Uh, do, join, I guess, like find your find your physical rhythms. And then if you want sure. to come work out, with me noon Pacific every day. I just do it live on Instagram. My Jared underscore sleeper. I it's been fun. There's like a few people who are very consistent with it. It's nice to see the same people pop up in the chat. And I don't know. It's great. It's a great way to take like it outside. I think maybe that's the thing overall is like this realization of how important other people are and connecting with other people, showing up for other people is to us when we can't physically do it, you know, has been like, I don't know. It's been so much easier to say like, I don't want to be alone. I don't want to live life alone and in my own head. And now that there's like the threat of actually losing it, losing other people, losing society, losing contact, it's so important. It's become so apparent and valuable, like how important other people are to us, communicating, connecting with them, doing things that might help them as well as help myself. It it, it seems very obvious and clear and present in a way, like a, a very tactile way, that value, you know? Yeah, hundred percent. Um, well, you guys, uh, thanks for joining us again. Um, this is like super fun. I, uh, I am putting these up now as like a regular podcast. Um, so you can get this or you can let somebody else know if they want to hear this, it'll be up again, probably Monday or Tuesday. I'll, I'll get the, uh, the pod out. Um, I took a few notes. Uh, I'll ask uh, Dr. Nick to give us resources that we've been putting in a a shared Google Doc. Um, It's just an open... Anybody can go to this Google Drive and find... Last week, we put in some stuff in there about codependency and assessing suicide risk and how to maybe uh, help out when someone's in a bad place, some literature and stuff that Nick's sharing with us. Um, I post that uh, on the Patreon, patreon.com slash mygoodbadbrain. It's not behind a paywall or anything. It's just a central place to go put those things. If you do feel like contributing some cash to the pod, it's greatly, greatly appreciated. Um, helps make the time to to do the edits and whatnot and equipment and blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, I think that's uh, that's pretty much it. Thank you, Nick, for being here again. Uh, and uh, you guys, just stay sane. Self-care, hydrate, there. be well. We'll see you guys next week. Bye. Welcome to my good, bad brain. I'm a normal person, so I'm insane. I've got depression and ADHD, but I'm doing better since I medicated me. I'm still
still not always sure whether I exist or what being a person even really is. But I figured out a long time ago that being alive is beautiful. Hey, honey. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.